Do you recall a day where everything clicked into place, where the world seemed to move in perfect harmony and every task flowed effortlessly? Introducing you to London Nootropics, adaptogenic coffee blends, thoughtfully crafted to elevate and balance your day, delivering all the perks of your beloved coffee, plus the incredible benefits of adaptogens, which also help to dial down those less than loved side effects like jitters, anxiety, and that all too familiar crash. A premium mix of medicinal mushroom extracts and other potent adaptogens, each blend is targeted for a specific purpose depending on what you need. Flow enhances your mental clarity and focus. Zen is your go-to for stress, relief and balance. And Mojo offers that clean, natural energy lift. It's the synergy between caffeine and adaptogens that works wonders, allowing us to relish the caffeine buzz without the drawbacks, ensuring a smooth, sustained energy flow. My top pick is the Zen Blend. It's a lifesaver for those of us who are caffeine sensitive and not to mention comes in the most charming packaging. So why not elevate your coffee experience with London New Tropics? Discover the perfect blend, find your flow and enjoy an exclusive 20% discount with the code SaturnReturns at LondonNewTropics.com. Hello everyone and welcome to Saturn Returns with me, Kagi Dunlop. This is a podcast that aims to bring clarity during transitional times where there can be confusion and doubt. Pausing this for a moment because I've got something exciting to share. Today's episode is brought to you by London Nootropics, the masters of crafting adaptogenic coffee blends that don't just taste heavenly, but they also boost your energy the right way. Now we all love that zesty kick from caffeine. It snaps us awake by outsmarting those sleepy adenosine receptors in our brain. But here's the kicker. Caffeine can hike up our cortisol, giving us the jitters or anxiety, particularly if you're like me and caffeine sensitive. But that's where the magic of adaptogen steps in. These natural heroes level out our cortisol, smoothing the energy boost from caffeine without the downsides. Plus, while caffeine tends to rush in and fade away, leaving you crashing, adaptogens extend that energy, keeping you vibrant without reaching for another cup. So if you want to find your most productive self with Lion's Mane and Rhodiola in their flow blend, Cordyceps in Mojo is known to increase our aerobic capacity, oxygen flow and boost ATP. So it's perfect before a run or workout or when you're feeling fatigued. So if you're intrigued and you want to dive deeper into their blend secrets and discover which adaptogens sync with you, try visiting their website. And because you're part of the Saturn Returns family, enjoy a special 20% off at London Nootropics Adaptogenic Coffee with the code SATINRETURNS. Enjoy! And anytime I find myself justifying a relationship in my life, friendship, dating, whatever, to my friends, I know that there's something wrong going on. Then when you're going, yeah, but they do this and blah, 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 blah. And it's almost like a Jekyll and Hyde type split thing where they're amazing and you kind of crave those moments. And I've had that in, in female friendships as well, not just romantic relationships. On this week's episode of Saturn Returns, I am joined by the one and only Florence Given. I have wanted to get Florence on the show for such a long time, so I was so thrilled to have this conversation with her. And in this conversation, we unpack female friendships. This has been a topic that so many of you have asked for on the show. So I'm very excited to be having this conversation with Florence and bringing this episode to you. Before we get into this episode where we unpack a lot, let's check in with our astrological guide, Nora. Charles Orjak signs. 12 houses, 
12 realms that preside over a particular area of the human life. Friendship relates to the archetypes of Gemini, Libra, and Aquarius, the three signs that represent the air element. The air element, among many things, stands for mental and intellectual connection. It stands for communication and what we can create out of it. The types of communities and friendships we become a part of thanks to this very expression of the air element within us. Saturn, at the time of recording, is transiting the sign of Aquarius, the last of the air signs. It's the sign of the humanist, the genius, the innovator, but mostly, it's the sign of the friend. Saturn also corrodes Aquarius, which means that if we look at our friendships, we are most likely to learn much about ourselves and the needs we have in healthy, enjoying friendships. Some, for example, discover around their Saturn return that a childhood friend is to go in a different direction or that a friend they bloody trusted betrays them. Others feel cast out of a friend circle they so deeply valued. And then on the brighter side, many finally find their community and forge friendships that set a foundation for the next decades. If we're open to it, the opportunity to attract sincere platonic love starts to increase significantly as we get older. We become less tolerant with friendships that have jealousy, greed, or unhealthy competitiveness plaguing it, something we might have normalized before. During Saturn transits, we're seeking friends we know we can rely on. We desire to align with those who have similar values and a moral compass pointing in the same direction, at the very least. A quote by Anais Im, who was a novelist with Saturn in Aquarius in her own natal chart, explains the gifts and necessity of a healthy friendship best. She wrote, each friend represents a world in us, a world possibly not born until they arrive. And it is only by this meeting that a new world is born. So wait, Florence, I, I want to call you Flaws because I feel yes, like I- Yes, you can I... call me Flaws, you can call me Flaws. <laughs> <laughs> um, welcome to the Saturn Returns podcast. Thank you so much for having me, I'm so excited. We've wanted to have you on here for ages and I do feel, I think probably a lot of people get this with you, I do feel like I know you. you okay, know interesting, yeah. <laughs> um, but then obviously like, you know, perceptions of how people are then like sometimes very different in reality. So I'm super excited to have this conversation. The place where I wanted to begin, if you're like happy to go there, because obviously you're still very, very young, you've achieved a huge amount, but I would like to ask you about what your experience was like at school. The reason I bring it up is because I think friendship groups and especially like women's friendships are a big theme that people talk about. um, And then I get a lot of questions about with my community and it's something I've heard you speak about and also you have so much autonomy and like authority in who you are but of course like our friendships and our relationships in our younger life like have a play a huge part in in shaping who we are or you know perhaps we rebel against them so I just wanted to ask you about those years because of course they're super formative to all of us they are and- they're, they're, they're super formative and I really I really love how you frame this question because I actually when I look back at my life I think I learned probably um, obviously everyone learns their attachment style from their parents but I think I was hurt 
most in my female friendships as a child oh my God. because yeah. women hurt each other with intimacy we don't hurt each other by beating each other up in the playground and then being like all right fine this is over this is done with like the boys do right it's like we we spread rumors about each other we use our secrets against each other to get in with the the other girls or the cooler girls or when it's our turn and we're the one being picked on we grovel back to the friend group and then, and then some people opt out of it altogether. And I think everyone has a different experience of female friendship when you're growing up in secondary school, primary school. And I always was very attached to my female friends growing up, like very attached. Did you have like one best friend or like a group or lots of different friends or did you, how was it for you? I've always had lots of different friends, but I have my besties, you know, I, when I was in primary school, I was very, I was a very eccentric child. I was very self-expressive. I used to wear Lady Gaga costumes. I used to make collages of Lady Gaga. I used to learn how to do her hair. Uh, she had in, in the music video with her and Beyonce telephone, they made these like cigarette sunglasses and I made them out of little brown rolled papers and stuck them on my Primark sunglasses. And I was very expressive. I used to make people do tests of my knowledge of Lady Gaga. I'd be like, ask me absolutely anything about Lady Gaga <laughs> and I will answer it. Um, I, was just, I was very eccentric. I used to upload pictures of myself online like fuck the haters I had absolutely no haters but I was on my Facebook account going fuck the haters my middle finger up um, <laughs> and, and then I would get bullied for it on Facebook and people made up these Facebook accounts like Florence Given as a slag um with all of these pictures were of they me. people from school yes people from school but you yeah. didn't know who set them up so then yeah. it was like oh who made this account of me um <laughs> so yeah I was very I was a very eccentric child and my mum just let me do it. She, we'd be in Zara. I'd be shopping with my mum in Zara, like holding her hand. And then all of a sudden, I'd just break out into some kind of break dance in the middle of the room in my little punk skirt tutu with my friend at the time. And my mum just kind of like, my mum ne was never embarrassed of me, which I think has helped me keep that flame, the flame that I still have today to even go online and be silly and do talking videos and dance in my knickers. I think you have this gorgeous creative flame inside of you. And I think everyone has it and it's either bashed out of you or it's preserved and loved by those around you. And I think I thank my mum greatly for never shaming me for who I was, even if she didn't think it was, you know, cool or whatever. She always just kind of, yeah, let Floss do her own thing. I think the shame kept it crept in with my peers. So it wasn't until I moved to secondary school that I decided to fit in. Brené Brown talks about the distinction between fitting in and belonging. And fitting in is the sense of molding yourself to be the same as people in a group, uh, to have a sense of... It's a false sense of belonging. It's, yeah, it is a false sense of belonging, exactly. But when you're authentic, you'll actually tend to find that maybe there aren't people around you who resonate or relate to that. And then it just actually takes a, a, a lot longer to form those connections. Long story short, I went to high school. I was so annoying. I was in the first year, I was like, going around to everyone, hi, I'm my, my name's Floss, I'm obsessed with Twilight. And then th this self-awareness of boys and girls and what everyone thinks of me started to kick in. And it was very obvious to me that there was a hierarchy in school for me. And it's survival instinct. So I just completely dumbed down everything that I was about. It wasn't a conscious decision at all. I was doing what I thought you had to do to be popular and be liked. And I think that's one of the biggest currencies. But when you're a young girl, especially, you're like, I need to be liked. And it's only exacerbated now on social media that's why I've written all about this in Girl Crush and I've started every chapter with Earth is following and likability because I want people to see how it literally impacts her mood when she wakes up in the morning. If she's lost followers, she's having a shit day. And every single thing that you go through in high school, I cannot imagine having TikTok in high school now. 
Um, so anyway, I was friends with this group of girls in school. And then I, I was an absolute little shit in school for the first few years when I started being friends with them, not paying attention in class, um, just completely dumbing myself down, just being a little shit, basically. And then my parents had an intervention with my teachers, you know, like parents evening. And they were like, Floss is so bright, but she's not applying herself. And we don't know why. We think something needs to happen because she's sat at the back of class. She's not behaving. She's just not applying herself. But we see these little sparks in her. And it's it's like it's wanting to get out, but she's not letting it. And my parents were like, Floss, you need to buckle down. You need to focus on your grades. And so I sat, started to sit in the front of class, right? I was like saying to my mates, I was like, oh, I've got to sit in the front of class forever. Then I actually started to apply myself and I really enjoyed it. I'm a very, I, I love, I love, I love working. I love getting results. I love doing tests. I love exams. I loved all of it. And my grades went from D grades to A grades um, in, for my GCSE. And then once I started to sit at the front of the class in school and actually want more for myself, that's when I lost all the friends because it was, it was almost like a cult. It was like anyone who breaks the rules of the cult is exiled from the cult and you'll have rumors spread around about you. So you're completely isolated and no one else can be friends with you. And that was the punishment. Um, I confided in a friend about a secret, uh, a very personal secret, something I was going through. And then it got spread like wildfire around the school as social currency because she wanted to be friends with the popular girls. Right. Um, and I, I remember experiencing such shame I had to, I, after that, I had no option to crawl back to them because I'd been kicked out. And I was on my own for a bit. I made friends in some other classes, but that's when I fucking found myself. And I developed anxiety um, going into school because of the girls and what they would say. And even, even a look from them would, you know, girls are so mean. And um, I'm not entirely a victim. I've definitely been mean to girls in school. And then when you experience it, on yourself and it's everyone in school is not allowed to talk to you because they've heard this rumor about you and you're really gross it's um it's so it's so shameful you feel it in your body but I completely rejected that shame so I I googled like I was having heart palpitations and I didn't know what it was I didn't want to tell my mum because I thought it was embarrassing and I googled racing heart short of breath whatever and it was like you have anxiety and then I went to Waterstones to buy a book on mindfulness because it said one of the techniques to soothe it is to be more mindful and to do breathing exercises. So I was 14 years old and I bought this book on mindfulness and that book changed my life. It said in the book, uh, do one thing that scares you. And I loved the sun. I still love the sun. I'm an absolute sun worshipper. And I went and laid in the middle of this field where everyone from my school would go. It was like it was like a park near the school. And to be seen on your own laying in the middle of a field was just so embarrassing and cringy. But it's what I wanted to do. So I went over to the field. I laid in the middle of it, listened to an entire album of what I was listening to. And I just felt so in love with myself. I was like, oh, my God, that was so embarrassing at first. But now I feel amazing. I feel confident. I feel courageous. And then I started to include those little acts of courage in my everyday life, which I think Gloria, Gloria Steinem actually has a, a quote about doing one outrageous act a day. And an outrageous act to someone else might be something as scary as asking someone for the time. Everyone has a different version of what's scary and what isn't. And to me, that was being seen as alone. And that's what I talk a lot, a lot about in Women Don't Know You Pretty Even is having courage to be single. And I think that we're so encouraged, women in particular, to just couple up with literally anyone rather than <laughs> rather than be alone that we settle for these really uh, toxic and unhealthy relationships um, and it's just something I'm so passionate about I'm so passionate about showing women the alternatives I just love 
any reason to bring women together. And I love doing it with my Instagram, doing it with my events. And it's actually healing for me because of what I've been yeah. through before. Well, I was going to say, it sounds very healing for you because, you know, there was that sort of exile that you experienced. And I thought you touched on so many amazing things. Firstly, that thing that your parents always encouraged you to be who you were and your fullest expression is amazing because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't get that and that's not necessarily a parent's fault it's just they're living through their own limitations or how they've made themselves smaller and in turn they're projecting that onto their children but then secondly this piece around belonging and fitting in which is so present in school and in this very hierarchical way but then as we get older we still like there's still this presence of it and even though on one hand women can create amazing communities for each other of support and we talk about things and we can be emotional support systems to each other equally we can tear each other's down and that part around school and like what you experienced and that sort of exile you went through I think is going to resonate with so many people and also for you to have that awareness. Did you say you were 14 when you had yes, that book? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you took yourself off at 14 and you were like, fuck this, I'm going to lie yeah. on the field on my own, which is incredible yeah. because I don't think people, sometimes people go their whole lives without ever doing that one courageous thing. But then, you know, you're saying that now sort of your part of your mission is bringing women together and actually creating community so did that stem from that feeling of isolation and exile I wouldn't say I think anyone who goes into any type of work that's people focused doesn't know why they do it until they have hindsight so I didn't do it going I'm doing this because of my experience in high school or I'm I'm doing this because I don't want to be that person I want to be the antidote to this it wasn't a conscious decision I think you just go full steam ahead and then only later I'm going, oh, obviously, duh. Like, you know, it's like then you connect the dots and I'm looking back at everything and I'm like, God, it just makes so much sense. Even my complete obsession with women, I didn't know I was queer, you know? Like, I didn't know that that was why. And then in hindsight, you look back and I'm like, oh my God, there's there's all of the dots. I used to, like, oh, it's the classic queer coming out story of only look, looking back and seeing how obvious it was. Um, I was, Why was it obvious? I, I, in these, I was completely, like I said to you, I formed these really intense attachments with my female friends and I couldn't quite make sense of those feelings because I'd only seen women be loved and adored through the eyes of men. So I'd seen examples of how men loved women and how men thought about women and I didn't relate to that way. It was this inexplainable feeling and no one else had it or was talking about it, at least. Um, and the I, and also the image, the stereotypical image that we have of lesbians is, is butch and masculine. And I just wasn't butch and masculine. And I was like, well, then that's just all of these feelings is obviously I'm just obsessed with my friends. And I, obviously I just think these women are beautiful in the media. And I just you know, maybe want to kiss them. And oh God, what does that mean? And yeah, so I didn't really know. But then, yeah, was like, I remember I have this really vivid memory of crying to my mum in Asda. I'm like holding her hand as a child going, mom, I don't want to be a lesbian. Because I was thinking, <laughs> because I was thinking, you'd have to conform to the stereotypes. Yeah, no, no, no. I just didn't know because I was having these thoughts. Um, right. I was, I was having, oh, and you were scared I, about and I was, it. Yes, yeah. I inherently knew that being gay wasn't safe and that it wasn't like something that people in society liked. It was all this internalized homophobia that I had. I was like literally five years old in Asda, just crying. And I think, like you said, the way that we're brought up and and view often 
ourselves and like the way women are viewed through the male gaze is like very overly sexualized. So when you had this sort of adoration for women, at what point did it become sexual, if you don't mind me asking? Because it, it sounds like it was more like you just adored them. No, so it was actually... like, it was like, you know, the, the more I came into myself, it was like, absolutely, I wanted to have sex with girls and kiss girls. But I also wanted to care for them and love for them in ways that I've never heard men speak about. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, yeah, I want her to fuck me, but I also want to braid her hair before she goes to bed, you know? <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck is that? Like, what, what is this? Oh, it's just, it, that's just love. That's just what you that's want to do. Yeah, but I, I never, and I never spoke about it to my friends because then I thought, would they be scared? It's the classic mm-hmm. queer thing where you're like, if I tell my friends, will they be afraid because we've had sleepovers? And yeah, they and are they going to think out? that I fancy them? <laughs> yes, and it's just so annoying. So, yeah. What was that like with your parents? Or were they like completely amazing and, and yeah, open Yeah, they, them? my mum didn't really get it. I think, I think a lot of parents, they can understand being gay or straight, but not bisexual. So they're like, which one is it? Uh, my dad, when I first came out, he thought I was lesbian. I saw him like two years after I'd come out and we just finally spoke about the girls I've been dating. And he was like, and I said like a guy was attractive or something. And he was like, whoa. He was like, do you like men again? I was like, I'm bisexual <laughs> Um But yeah, they're, they're totally supportive of me. Um, and yeah, I feel very lucky to have that. And then when it came to your friendship groups, because... It sounds like you went through a big shift, especially moving to London yeah. with friendships. What was that like at school? And then how did that change as you left school and moved to London and kind of crafted this new life for yourself? Yeah, so I'd been putting my artwork online while I was living in Plymouth. So everyone in Plymouth kind of knew me for being this loud feminist. Um, but that only really came between so I started illustrating in my art GCSE Um, my art teacher introduced me to a fashion illustration book and I was like can I draw naked women and he was like yeah go for it again how did I not know (laughs) so I was like can I draw naked women so I started doing that and then when I went to art college I did my fashion BTEC instead of A-levels and there was this course on the thing where we were doing fashion illustration and I just completely fell in love with the unit started pairing it with my political slogans. I've been going to nightclubs, men were groping me and my friends and I couldn't believe it. I was disgusted and no one else was disgusted. Everyone was like, Frost, that's just, all my friends were older so they'd already been going out for a while. They were like, Frost, that's just the way it is. They don't mean anything by it. And I was like, but I feel violated. Am I crazy? But this is like, this is weird. And then I started Googling it. I was like, oh my God, sexual harassment is a thing. So I started putting it into my illustrations, desperate for someone to just kind of agree with me that this is fucked up. Started putting them on Instagram, uh, and then they started getting shared. I did some exhibitions in London. So then everyone in Plymouth, suddenly, everyone knew what my deal was, that I was this woman. I'd go into the smoking area and I'd have girls up telling me all about their section of rape trauma at like 18, 19 years old. And it was a lot. And I didn't know what to do because I'm not going to tell this woman, excuse me, this is inappropriate, which is crying to me about this. Oh, God, it was so much. Um, and I had absolutely no boundaries then. I didn't know what I was doing. So you were talking with all these people and like holding space for them whilst they were going like yes. through the stuff. Yeah, and also yes, and also I was um, young at the same time. I was just yeah. talking about what's right and what's wrong. Um, I didn't know really what was going on. I just I knew I had a way with being able to give people advice and making women feel heard and seen and comforted and without really saying much at all, just listening to them. Anyway, then I came to London. Um, to London College of Fashion, where which I did styling, 
Um, and then alongside that, I also worked a full-time job as a waitress in Chelsea in The Botanist. And I used to get really good tips there. So I, but there were all the men were really uh, just like, I just hated it. I was like, I'm I'm this massive feminist, and then I go to be a waitress where these men are flirting with me for tips, and it was just so shit. And I was like, I hate this. And then I was also doing full time uni work and doing my uh, illustrations, and then eventually I was like, something has got to give, and I dropped out of uni, gave my illustration work my full time, and then I wasn't really friends with anyone at this point because you asked me about friendships and the transition that's what I was going to so in Plymouth I had I did have some good girlfriends um some people from my art college who were lovely and amazing not really friends with those people anymore but just outgrown and lives have gone separate ways and stuff and then when I came to London I didn't really have to come out to anyone because mm-hmm. it you're was just, just no one thought oh floss is straight it was it, it's weird in London it's almost like if you're in these kind of scenes no one thinks you're straight at least that's been my experience anyway which is amazing especially someone who's feminine and bisexual, as people usually assume the opposite. But I was going into one of these spaces and, you know, talking about uh, being an ally of queer people. And people were like, this girl is a very passionate ally. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then um, I didn't really have to come out. I came out privately to a few people. But yeah, and, and then I made friends through um, posting my stuff online. and met some amazing women at these events. Some of my friends I've met through dating apps. Uh, we've gone on a date and it's not worked out, whatever. Yes, and I have the most amazing core group of friends now who are so incredible and just joyful. That's what I look for in friends. People who are critical thinkers and joyful. I, I find it very hard to be around miserable people. And I don't mean people who are having a hard life. I don't mean people who have insecurities. My friends have all of them. I have all of them. I have so many insecurities. And there are ways that you can handle insecurities that don't make everyone around you suffer with them. And me and my friends, we're all very responsible for the energy that we bring to a room. And I just love them so fucking much. I love people who bring joy to other people's lives. And that is the bare minimum for friendship and dating with me. Well, it sounds like a big thing for you is accountability. Yeah, yeah. But it's funny because accountability sounds like such a mean word now, I think. We've seen it so much. Not really. No, not not to you. That's good. To me, I think when I hear the word accountability, it almost has these connotations of rigorous self-reflection to the point that it's like painful. And I mm-hmm. want, I, do you know what I mean? It almost sounds quite not very, uh, not a very relaxing state to be in if you're accountable. But actually, it's, it, it, is, it is easy. But I don't, okay, I've seen people almost criticize themselves for absolutely every single thing that they do because they want to be accountable for everything, you know? So I think it, accountability itself isn't a bad thing, but people can use it to just completely berate themselves. Yeah. So taken to the extreme and then when it's self-berating, it's also another form of sort of playing the victim, really, in sort of the narrative yes. of your own life. But you're kind of saying that you're accountable for it. But actually, it's like a sort of joyful accountability, I guess, is what you're saying. It's like take ownership over the part you play in things, but but show up and be mindful of the energy you're bringing to the table. Yeah. To bring it back to school for a second because you mentioned before about how women have broken your heart and how women have the capacity to break each other's heart and betray each other in just a friendship capacity. 
Because the reason I bring it up is it, it only came to my awareness quite recently because I think when I think about trust or my inability to trust sometimes, I, I if that's in relationship, I'll, I'll sort of pin that back to like men and the relationships I've had with them. But I rarely gave any consideration to the female friendships that, of course, at that age when we're younger, are just as profound and just as intimate. And when we are betrayed by them, like there's not much space to put those emotions there's not much conversation around betrayal and friendship or when a friendship ends what do we do with all that love do you know what I mean because when breakups happen like everyone is very understanding very supportive but when a friendship ends or we outgrow a friendship that's something that's also incredibly painful so has that been something you've experienced a bit later on in life yeah, I think I've I've outgrown so many friends. Friends have outgrown me in lots of different ways since I moved to London and stuff. Yeah, I think what's interesting as well is that, you know, you, you said you can make the split between who you date and who you're friends with, whereas I date women. And so those, that kind of, um, that wounding from women early on will impact my dating life because I'm dating women. So it's harder for me to make that split. And although, of course, it's for me, it's been learning to treat people as individual people and not like I'm looking into a mirror of my past and you're going to do this because this person did this or blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. Yes. Isn't that hard, though? It is hard. And it's, it's finding, I guess, the right person or the right people to do that work with. Um, something I've learned is that relationships, friendships, um, they are work and they are they're not going to be easy and it's so easy for me when I first started coming when I moved to London and I was single I almost didn't want to I worked so hard on becoming independent um and learning to be okay on my own that I've now realized that actually there's no such thing as being too independent however you can only heal relationship wounds in a relationship yeah right because yeah. you, you can, when you're on your own, you're I fine. I can be sat here alone in my flat, like I'm healed. I'm yeah. not. I'm not insecure. I'm not jealous when blah 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 blah. And it's because I've no one to be jealous about in that situation, you know. Yeah. Or, or um, when it comes to attachment styles and all of this kind of stuff, you can think that you're so good, fine and dandy. Um, but it's because you've not been in a relationship for so long, and then all of that stuff kind of comes up when you start dating again. Um, me and my friends talk about it a lot. And yeah, I, I think I think relationship wounds can only be healed. It's nothing, I'm not saying anything radical, but they can only be healed in relationships. But learning how to be on your own is the best thing for making sure that we don't end up in awful situations again. Because if you're okay being on your own, then you, you'll be okay saying to something that's uh, negative and not enhancing your life. Which of course sort of sounds paradoxical, but essentially like if you are repeating a toxic pattern and attracting a certain person into your life and not understanding why you're doing that and also afraid to be on your own, I think a time period when you are alone and really cultivate that independence and that life for yourself is the best thing that you can do. However, I do think there is such a thing as too independent because I found myself after a very bad breakup being like, I don't need anyone. This is the gonna life I'm gonna live. And there's nothing wrong with that. But like you said, the healing that's required often only comes when we're, when we're relating to another. And so we can think we're healed and have it all figured out. And then someone comes along and it's like a mirror to all those parts we cannot see on our own. Yeah. And then 
it kind of brings you around this like new stage. And I, I truly believe people come into your life so they can bring you that opportunity to heal. Because you said you said you can't be, you don't think you can be too independent. What do you mean by that? Okay. Well, no, I take that back because, of course, human beings rely on human beings. We, we, we all rely on each other. We rely on farmers who bring our fucking groceries to our store. Like, human beings are interdependent by nature. We need to rely on people to be able to function, to make money, to, to have someone to check in on us. We need people. What I think I meant in that context of when I said I don't think you can be too independent, there's never any reason for you to need to be in a relationship to just be in one and I think it depends what your default is and I think for a lot of women particularly my audience anyway because of what I talk about and what I've spoken about with relationship abuse and all this kind of stuff is that if your default is I must be in a relationship then I don't shift that you have to shift it yeah yeah and I think if you've been I agree with that completely yeah if you've been muting and suppressing your gut feeling for so long then it's almost like you need swinging the completely opposite direction just to get back to the healthy medium of like, I like people and I like alone time. So it's, it's that, that's what, that's what I did anyway. Like you said, when you have a single after being, you know, not in, not in a nice relationship to say the least for a while, then you can go in the complete opposite direction of like overcorrection, which I think a lot of people do with anything. As soon as you learn a new piece of information about something, you overcorrect it. And then eventually you come back to the medium. Totally. And also it allows you to better discern for yourself who is actually right for you and in alignment versus coming from that place of neediness because you don't feel complete without being in a relationship. Because your community, because I'm I'm a bit older than you, so a question and thing that I get more than anything is women panicking about being single at 27, 28, 29, 30, into their 30s. And I... Fortunately, a bit like you, my parents never put any pressure on me. They've never said, oh, when are you going to settle down and have kids? But I would be lying if I said that I was immune from the pressures from society and from just random people that feel that they can ask me these kind of things. And I sense that from my community, they struggle with that as well. So from your experience and the people that follow you and look up to you and ask you questions, what have you noticed about like what they have to say or how they feel about that particular piece yeah that's interesting there's definitely um there is the pressure to be with someone even more on old women who are older than me because there are literal like societal stakes and we place this importance on women with marriage with having children with our time running out as though we're like on some kind of shelf and we're the last one chosen and we're so fucking undesirable. So there are higher stakes, societally imposed stakes pressed on women the older you get. And women who are my age-ish, I get, I get messages from all kinds of women. I did a book signing the other day and there was um, uh, a few women in their 40s who said that they've read my book um, and that they've been single for the first time. So I don't want to generalize my audience. But women my age, the kind of issues that women my age come to me with is their first relationships. So they're having their first relationships and they've been with this person and it's usually a man in in a case of someone not treating them very well. It's usually a man, not always, but it usually is, where they say, but we've been together for so long and he's my childhood sweetheart and he does this, but then other times he does this. And what a lot of women do is wrestle with these two versions of men in our heads 
um, or any kind of abusive person, even with female friendships, it doesn't matter. You go around kind of justifying the relationship to everyone. And anytime I find myself justifying a relationship in my life, friendship, dating, whatever, to my friends, I know that there's something wrong going on there when you're going, yeah, but they do this. And, and sometimes they're like this. And it's like, blah, 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 and it's almost like a Jekyll and Hyde type split thing where they're amazing and you kind of crave those moments. And I've had that in, in female friendships as well, not just um, romantic relationships. And I think to go back to your point about female friendships or just friendships in general and them being really heartbreaking, it is really interesting. And we don't talk about it because uh, a friendship breakup isn't, it's not as spoken about because you can have multiple friends. Whereas like, with a partner generally speaking most people are monogamous so they're like you can clearly cut off a, a relationship where it's a lot harder to cut off a friend because it seems a lot harsher because technically you could just kind of keep them around around in your life and not reach out for a little bit or whatever so to actually text someone and end a friendship it feels different to ending a romantic relationship because typically people usually just have one but do you think that that's a good idea for people to do that if they feel that a, a friendship is no longer sort of serving them or it's toxic, that they should actually cut it off in that kind of way? Yeah, I, th- I think it is a good thing to do depending on the context. Everything requires context. So is this someone who has been wearing you down? Is this someone who's been wearing down your insecurities? They're an old friend. It's always the old friends. It's always the friends you've had around for a while. And perhaps you've made some new friends who reflect this newer version of you. And then you've got this old friend who's reflecting this old version of you. And you're like, how am I still maintaining and accepting this when I would never accept this from my new friends? Mm. Um, that's That's the thing that comes up a lot for me with people messaging me. They're like, I've made these new friends and I've got this friend and she's this and she's that, but I don't know why I tolerate it with her, but no one else. And it's this, it's like this bond that's just not healthy. Well, it's a bit like family. Yes. You know, it's like, it's that history we hold with someone because it's rich in experience. We like have a lot of value around it, even if that person's behaving out of integrity and actually pulling us down or making us smaller, especially if we've changed a lot, like you said, if we found a new group, if we found a new calling, we found something that's like lighting us up and we're going in that direction, but the other friend friend feels like they're being left behind. So they're kind of wanting to call us back into the version that we used to be and how this can manifest for a lot of people is within the behavior they do in that friendship circle. So if like they were partying a lot, like taking loads of drugs. And then there's something like, this isn't what I want to do. This isn't who I want to be. But they find themselves kind of slipping back in. Because it, again, goes back to that thing of like belonging, doesn't it? Like feeling like that need to belong, even in a situation that is no longer serving us, that's like actually harming us. And something that I've noticed recently is like, I've always wanted to control how people perceive me. Or that was something I struggled with when I was younger. And of course, then like, the more you sort of put yourself out there in the public, that perception kind of gets warped. It gets, it bring, it kind of has a life on, of its own. And I'm sure that this is something you've experienced. And so it becomes, you can no longer micromanage it. But how people in the past that may have been your friends and knew you at a certain point in your life, how they, they may still perceive you as you were then, even if you developed into a new person. And there's like a friction and a pain in that because you have to kind of let it go and know that you can't you can't change how someone's going to view you and they might just be viewing you that way because it makes them feel better about 
themselves. Yeah, not not to mention now that everyone's evolution is public. You get to see what your high school friends were doing are doing now. That's weird. It's so weird. We're not supposed to know that. We're supposed, we're supposed to bump into them at the pub when you go home for Christmas or something. You know, not see every single thing. And yeah, I think what, what you're saying about growing and outgrowing friends and stuff, there's a lot of guilt attached to that. And it's so uncomfortable, particularly if, if you know the old friend isn't actually a bad person. You might just have outgrown them and you can't connect to them anymore because not only because they represent an old version of you that you're trying to shake off. And I think the best long-term relationships or friendships, they do see the death and the rebirth of lots of different versions of yourself. But if that's completely drastic to who you used to be, then yeah, it might be hard to connect with that person anymore, particularly if it is, like you said, lifestyle differences um, and stuff that you just can't connect to or relate to anymore. Yeah. And what you were saying about the um, evolving online and stuff, thats what, it's so fascinating to me how fame is so accessible now and that's that's why also why I wanted to write Girl Crush is because typically fame was something that used to be uh something that people on the red carpet had and you didn't know anything about them unless it was printed in the press and now anyone can go viral on TikTok and that's what happens with Arthur in Girl Crush is uh, she goes viral on a platform called Wonderland where she's drunk and then the next morning uh she's being hailed with abuse and then extreme praise. And it's this really confusing cocktail that you receive on social media of feedback. Because every, so many people are experiencing, you don't need to have 2 million followers to experience this now. It's like a drug high addiction that people are having to social media online. And I wanted to kind of create this dystopian, but actually not that far off from where we are universe where we can look into it and I made the town fictional and the, the social media app fictional because it's easier I feel for people to talk and listen about themes when they're fictional and you can project yourself into them as well I know you've spoke like you do keep some things as sacred but you have also talked quite openly about relationships in your life that mm -hmm. have you've like felt possessed narcissistic behavior yes. and stuff like that so it's something that gets I think a lot of airtime and people use that term a lot like what has been your experience of that and how to kind of do you define it after having those conversations on the show and stuff I've, I've experienced um what I now realize through years of research years of reading books and years of watching Dr Ravani's YouTube videos she's the world's leading expert on narcissism and I now realize I've experienced it many times and it's funnily enough for exactly the reason you just said before about um you said you understand that people do bad things because they're hurting and while that is true it's having that belief at the forefront of my mind that has constantly excused the bad actions of other people and have had me keeping my arms open to them and while relationship abuse is never your fault there needs to be acknowledged that there's a pattern forming for me at least I needed to acknowledge that there was a pattern forming of my own kindness which is a beautiful thing uh, actually working against me and there's there's a quote around social media about uh empathy is incredible but um empathy without boundaries is self-harm and that is essentially what had happened to me is that I was such a proud nice woman and I prouded myself on that identity that even the idea and that, again that that's society programmed but it is my responsibility to change it no one else is coming to save me and I think that the really shitty thing to learn was was that um I had 
chosen these people. And that doesn't mean it was my fault, but there was something in me that wanted to win over their approval. Um, and, you know, of course, that, that game of approval seeking is created by the narcissist with the with the love bombing and the affection and then the immediate withdrawal of it. So you literally have addictive symptoms where you need it back. And they're the only person who can supply you this drug. They're the only person who can give you, and then and then they give it back to you, and then you're so happy, and then and then they do the bad thing again, and th- this is kind of the cycle that you get trapped in. And the more that these acts of abuse occur, the more you become tied to a person. And I think it takes women, on average, seven times to leave an abusive relationship. Seven attempts. That's the average go at it, and it's something I'll never stop talking about in my life. Relations. There's so many things I care about changing in the world, and unfortunately, can't talk about all of them. So I choose to focus on relationships because I think that's where, for me at least, it's it's the most interesting topic because it involves people. And I have learned over the years to develop boundaries and be okay with being seen as a rude person. And you're never being rude. You're just, there's this book that I've recently just finished called The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. I don't know if you've read it. Mm-mm. No? Okay. Mm-hmm. I recommend this book to every single woman on the planet every single queer person oh my god so the whole thing teaches you how to listen to your intuition um and it's basically about personal safety and how your gut is never wrong and how the worst the worst thing that can happen if you make a misjudgment about someone let's say someone on the street is offering you a hand and you say no thank you and they go oh come on you're being a bit too proud you're one of those feminists let me help the bags no thank you i said no you walk on the worst thing that you have done is made a rude impression on a stranger. At best, it has saved your life because this person was trying to kidnap you. And this was something in the book that taught me, one of the chapter titles or something is Politeness Gets Women Killed. And it goes through all of these cases where women who, who had gotten into abusive relationships with people because the man persisted, 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 persisted. And we're taught to find that fucking charming right down to the Disney movies we watched when we were growing up. So it's all of these ways. That's that so true. That, yeah, all of these ways that we're taught and then blamed for being in these relationships. And like I said, you're, it's never your fault, but it is only your responsibility to get out. It's only because we need to empower women and people, anyone who's in an abusive relationship, that they do have a choice. And though that choice is not obvious, and I've been in one myself, I know how hard it is to leave, but that there is a choice and that you, you can get out of it. And when it comes to narcissistic abuse, you can't see it. It's not physical, at least not always. No. And like you say, you get you get stuck in that cycle of like relapse and recovery when sort of the 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 poison and the antidote are one of the same and you're chasing that high of that person, but even though you know that they're the one that hurting you. But also how we have like you say, we have to acknowledge our participation in that because especially if there's been like a pattern with different people. It's like, that's one of the most profound but incredible things when I actually did like a timeline and it it was like during this retreat and it was to do with like relationships and people in my life. And there was like all these questions around it. And then one of them was, what role did you play in this? And at the time I was like, I don't understand. I was like, no, I didn't actually comprehend. I went over and I was like, I don't understand this question. Yeah, and they were like, you know it was a day of silence as well and I was just like this doesn't make any sense and then suddenly it hit me and I was like fuck I am the like common theme here because I'm calling these people into my life and I found that like so liberating but also obviously painful to acknowledge 
and it also goes back to what we were just saying about like having that core if you have those five people that core friendship it makes it a lot easier it's quite hard I empathize with people that don't that are so far gone that they only have that person you know their world has become so warped oh, and that's, become that's so what they closed do off. they do it to you they isolate you they, they start saying things about your friends I think your friend's jealous of us you know da 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 she's been single for ages she's just jealous da 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 and then the second your friend your bestie goes I think there's something wrong with him you're immediately brainwashed to think that she's just being jealous and, and then you just dismiss any attempt for anyone to bring you back into reality because you've already been, these people have already been smeared as jealous in your mind. And it's just, it's like a spider to a fly. When, when you mentioned about, you know, this book, um, I want to write it down before, before I let you go, but in terms of how we disengage willingly from our intuition, especially as women, because I think intuition for women is stronger. It's like a, you know, it's a very feminine quality. I always think about how animals, when they're in danger, right? If they sense danger, they, they'll feel it. They'll have like an instinctive thing. You you watch it on like, when you watch the TV shows with David Attenborough and you've got like an animal that sensed something. It hasn't seen it yet, but it knows that shit is like going on and it will run. Whereas as, as humans and as women, we'll sort of sense something, but then we'll like use our logic and our language to sort of call up our girlfriends and convince ourselves it's a good idea and depart even more from our intuition. And I think the further along we go, the more we kind of lose how to tap into it. Like we don't lose it, it's still there, but because we ha- it's like a trust muscle, you know, we haven't like actioned it we're like oh well I've kind of used logic and reason so let's keep using logic and reason and then we can feel really really lost so I think that that key piece about knowing that it's okay to just feel something and trust it but like you say society whether it's intentional or not and like the darker realms makes me think it is intentional we're told as women to be polite and agreeable and all these things of course it's intentional but do you think it's intentional so that we just do what men want yes 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 immediately yes it's it's so that we're easier more pliable to sell products to because if you don't know who you are you you can be easily dictated to your interests your sexuality what you wear where you buy where you shop it's like we're so much more, our minds are way more pliable and vulnerable to submission um, and to being dictated to the more we look to externally for answers. Because the more, even, even, the, even the thing of having an intuition is called feminine and girly. And it's like, oh, no, no, no. Like you said, I and think- woo woo and witchy. Yeah, exactly. And isn't it funny, the very things that make women feel amazing and actually liberate us and bring us together are the very things that are shamed. And those are exactly the things that will liberate us and bring us closer to ourselves because that's one of the biggest dangers and threats to society. Businesses would crumble if women liked themselves. People wouldn't be paying them any money because we'd all be okay as we are. But it takes everyone to agree. You can't just have one woman going, okay, let's all just stop trying to be pretty because the standard is still upheld by everyone. Let's let's all stop um, having to wear makeup and do this with our hair for, to, to, to be treated well in the workplace no it would take everyone doing it or it would take like a team effort everywhere 
And there's the thing of acknowledging that shit is fucked up and women should not be judged by, by their bodies. And then also accepting that there is a reality in which that is still being upheld because that is still the way it is. And it's making That's little... the system we're living in. Yes, yeah. And I think we are definitely... Uh, the best book I've ever read about this entire thing that we're talking about is The Beauty Myth by Naomi Wolf about how women are controlled and manipulated to spend their money. When I was saying about all of the things that women are shamed for, so sex, food, all of this stuff, we are allowed to enjoy it, but not too much. And anything that we enjoy too much is greedy. So if you enjoy sex too much, you're a slut. If you enjoy food too much, you're a greedy and large woman and you're taking up too much space. And all it does is teach women that we're not allowed to enjoy living. Even the way that we constantly suck in our stomachs the second someone looks at us and we're taking a picture or something like this, it's that we're, we're constantly living. And again, that's such a general statement, but for most women, that is fucking true. Um, even like rolling over in your stomach and having a hookup when someone puts their hand on your stomach is like the worst nightmare for a lot of women. And this stuff, it's like we're not really inside our bodies, we're witnessing our bodies living. As ornaments. Yes, as ornaments. And what I was going to say is it, it's funny that all of the things that women are supposed to be enjoying and all of the things that would liberate us, including hating and fighting with each other, is exactly what keeps patriarchy alive and thriving. Because if we're not talking with each other and we're hating each other, and if women can't trust each other, then who do we turn to for validation? So, and the other thing is like, back in the day, congregations of women, if you were women talking together like in ye old town you were called witches and you were murdered like that, <laughs> that's that's how, that's how dangerous women communicating was is because any kind of ceremony or anything there was a woman called bridget bishop um she was one of the first witches to be killed at the salem trials and she wore red clothes and had lovely sex with a lot of people and she was murdered for being a quote-unquote slack and that's what we killed women for. You were punished for showing anything that showed that you enjoyed the very things that men are allowed to enjoy. And so I do, it is very intentional, the way that we're made to feel. And it's, it's just so, you only need to look at the fact that all the things that would actually liberate women from giving a fuck what men think and realizing and waking up to the fact that they're running this whole game are the things that we're shamed to not enjoy. And like you said, it's like, we can only have a little bit of it, but not too much. And so it's like this sort of narrowing of what we're allowed to experience and, and express. Because I was writing, I was having a bit of a like rant with myself the other day and the sort of frustrations. And it was, it wasn't even a poem. It was just like a stream of consciousness. And it, and it was the top of it was the rules for being a woman. And it went on to say like all the things that we're taught, which is sort of be thin, fit into the ever ever-changing standards of beauty that are always evolving and never achievable and then sort of you know don't be too loud exist in a man's world like don't be too masculine be feminine like be sexual but for a man don't be too slutty don't be too pr like prudish don't and it's like all these things that are constantly around and then it's like oh have have a baby but like don't let your body change don't be depressed if your body changes and like all these things and especially because I'm 33, so many women that I think there's this view that when you reach 30, that it narrows even more. And that you're, and I think that again is intentional because I feel like you know yourself amazingly, but most people take till they're about 30 to finally kind of come into their power. And then it's like, oh no, the window's gone. <laughs> you can't do any of these things. <gasps> Nothing because... infuriates me more than the scam that we're supposed to be afraid of getting older 
Like I've, I don't yeah. know how I have this mindset and maybe it's because I am young and I've not yet experienced the absolute wrath of people telling me, when the fuck are you going to have a baby? When are you going to get married yet? I've not had that yet. So maybe I'll change my mind in a few years, yeah? But I have this perspective on aging where I am genuinely so excited because I can't wait to become wiser. I can't wait to become more refined. That's always been my perspective on aging. But I know that that's not what we're supposed to think. We're supposed to be afraid of it. And yet the older you get, it's like there's something that's societally disgusting about a woman who finally knows herself. It's like we want to keep these women in this infantilized, prepubescent state. And that that's what men are supposed to be attracted to, older men. And it's just so fucked up that we're taught to view women as less attractive the more she knows herself. It's just so (laughs) weird. It's like, so you want a woman who doesn't know what she wants so you can dictate it to her. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And I was thinking about it in a sort of, when you think about women in the music industry, how that's, you know, they want them super, super young. And then it's past a certain point, like they're not interested. And that's because they're they're malleable and moldable when they're they're young. Yeah, it's so messed up. When you, because you talk a lot about internalized misogyny. Mm -hmm. What does that, mean to you and how does that sort of manifest for like a lot of people in a day-to-day way that they might not recognize okay so internalized misogyny can be thinking that you're not like the other girls putting women down and I don't think there's ever any reason to put a woman down I just don't that there's no reason and anytime those thoughts arise in my head I do not say them out loud and I evaluate what's actually behind them and it's usually jealousy (laughs) every single time almost every single time and there are some people by the way Kagi who will just piss you off who just are your kind of person yeah and that's okay it's not all kumbaya all women have got to be friends okay that's not what feminism about because also that doesn't have any accountability in it Jamila Jamil speaks excellently on all of this um, about how sometimes we just won't like a woman in the media because of her hair. And then we'll make everything about women can do amazing and brilliant things. And we'll be like, oh, but when she was five years old, she did this thing on the playground or is that men are not held to the same public scrutiny as women. Um, And it doesn't matter what kind of field you're in. Women, Jamila speaks about this excellently where she says that we want to know every single detail of a woman in in her public life, in her past. But with men, if a man does a bad thing or we just don't like him, we just kind of ignore him. But with women, we want to dissect and pick apart almost. And women do it to each other. It's not just men. Women do it to each other. Even when you think about gossip magazines, women buy them. (laughs) You know, it's, it's all a distraction. It's all a distraction. And the more that we kind of fuel all of this stuff, which I, I believe is all internalized misogyny, it's, a, it's called the crabs in a bucket syndrome. I don't know if you've heard of it, but for anyone else, crabs in a bucket syndrome is where when crabs are caught at sea, and this is real, and they get in a bucket, they can all help each other escape the bucket and get back into sea. But as soon as one crab is seen trying to escape the bucket, they all work to bring the crab down so that they all die together. <laughs> so it's, it's so real. we're all crabs. In so the so <laughs> try and, but again, the solution to freedom is literally there if we all band together. And I know that does sound a bit kumbaya, but if we all work together, there is a way of helping one another. But it's the trust that once the person is at the top, they're going to put their hand back down and pull you up. And that's what I feel is missing between 
some relationships if you've been hurt before or you wouldn't do it for someone else. there's all this trust that we're not taught to trust each other and again this is what i mean the more that women don't trust on each other the more women don't collaborate with each other the more that we view each other as competition the more the men who are stood over the fucking bucket who put you in the bucket in the first place are laughing their heads off and also we've seen you know forever how they love to pull a woman up and then tear her down and in like especially the british media is just notorious for it and doing it to such a degree that's just barbaric and but we all are partaking in it because we're reading about it we're buying the magazines it's like a witch hunt we, it's like watching it in an arena like in the olden days and mob mentality it's just yeah. it's so you can't look away i've i've definitely struggled with the um the thing about, and I've had it happen quite recently, actually, because I feel like I've changed a lot in my life, as one does. But And I was very different when I was in my 20s. And I found myself in a situation where someone, I won't go into too much detail, but someone thought it was appropriate to take my boyfriend off at a party and start telling them, warning them about how I behaved when I was in my 20s. Wow. And I literally, and then it caused this huge thing. And then I found myself sort of defending my yeah. behavior in my 20s. Yeah. And I was like, well, I was mostly annoyed at myself that I was partaking in it too, that I was feeling yeah. guilty about it. And I was like, this is not okay. No, no. Yeah, I, th- I read this really good quote on social media. It might be a little bit cringy, but it was something about like, bringing up my past and trying to use it against me now is like uh, trying to rob my my old house. Like, I don't live there anymore. It's so irrelevant. <laughs> like, I don't live there anymore. You're robbing my old house. I don't live there anymore. And it, this is, it, yeah, that, 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 that's so interesting to me. And I think many people have experienced different versions of that. What was the experience writing Girl Crush? How was that different to writing the nonfiction? if it was in like what was kind of going through your mind at the time what you were kind of escapism okay yeah more escapism more escapism because women don't only pretty I had the book in my head already installed everything I'd learned in my life everything I wanted to tell women um it was already in my head installed I knew exactly what the chapters were going to sound like what they were going to look like um it's something I've been doing for years so I already knew what I wanted the book to sound like doesn't mean it wasn't fucking hard to write um, but the process was the same. I wrote it in cafes. I also illustrated women don't only pretty in cafes. And with Girl Crush, it was escapism. So I could escape into the lives of these characters. And it was so exciting getting to create a fictional town. And I didn't actually know what was going to happen in the scenes until I came to writing the scenes. So I had really? the ske- Yeah. So I had the skeleton of the book, like chapters one to twenty. Eartha has sex here. Um, Eartha gets this text message that changes everything here. And I knew loosely what the plot line was going to be, but like I was writing a sex scene and, you know, I didn't know that Arthur was going to sit on this girl's face, but it fucking happened. It's a bit like like having sex yourself, you know? You just end up doing things. You're like, oh, okay, here we go. This is happening. (laughs) And so that's that's what it was like for me, that process. There were a lot of characters killed that that didn't work. My editor, so basically the process of writing a book, you had your chapters into your editor. And then I sent everything to her and the final manuscript is 160,000 words long. Um, and we cut it down to 100,000. So there was a lot killed, uh, but it was entirely necessary and something that I didn't do with Women Don't Know You Pretty because I knew how I wanted the book to be. So that was definitely different about this process was killing a lot of it. Would you say that the next book will be, are you going to write more fiction? Yeah, I, I want to write, write books for the rest of my life and I definitely want to write another fiction book. Absolutely. Is that the medium that you feel is most you? 
yeah and no. Like, I also want to write another nonfiction. I've got so much to say. <laughs> but, just, but just, I just mean in writing, though, in like yeah. doing books. Um, I think I'm good at articulating my thoughts. So that's why fiction is very me, because I am good at articulating feelings. And that, that that's why it works so well for me when I was talking to girls in smoking areas. They'd be like, I'm feeling this. And I'd say it back to them. They'd be like, that's exactly how I'm feeling. And that's what started off with my illustrations and my art. So I'd say that that's why nonfiction is very floss, but also fiction is very floss because I'm such a storyteller and I love creating these worlds. I'm a very visual person. And so being able to stream a movie into someone's mind, it's like Stephen King calls it like telepathy. Writing is telepathy because you write something over here and someone on the other side of the world made an an image appear into their mind. That is crazy Mm. and amazing. And I think it's magical. That is magical. Isn't it? (laughs) It is. And amazing that you can touch and impact people in that kind of way and for them to have such a full experience whilst Mm -hmm. they're reading it as well. And a different experience for everyone. So with everything we've talked about, obviously a super important thing here, and you've mentioned it a number of times, is boundaries. Now, boundaries are easy enough to kind of fathom, to intellectualize. Most people know what they are. We can even explain what they are if people don't understand. But if you are a sort of people pleaser and you live in the world that we live in, where women are often made to feel like they have to be nice and polite and all these things, how do you go about actioning these boundaries and actually setting them? What was that process like for you? Text messages. So texting people first. So start with the people you trust. For me, it was a process of, so if I'm with a friend now who asks me, Floss, have you got time? I'm like, like, babes, I'm knackered and I really can't be bothered to do that. Can we reschedule? Can we do it another time? Before that might have even been frightening for me to do. I've gone, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, 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 sure. Let me check my calendar, babe. Like, I know we said we'd do it. Yeah, I'm, I actually, I'm really busy this week, but I'll make it work. I promise, promise, promise. And then I'm going to go to the lunch, resentful, <laughs> absolutely resentful, a bit pissed off. And it's not my friend's fault. Whose fault is it? Fucking mine, because I should have said no. So when I say text messages, it was easier for me to implement boundaries with people over text rather than doing it face to face because that brings out my fight, flight, fawning responses where I go, where I placate and I go, oh, okay, okay, yeah, 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 it's fine because I can't imagine conf- anything, anything more uncomfortable than conflict at this period. Yeah, me neither. Right? <laughs> so text messages saying, you know, writing something out always helped me for my introduction to boundaries. I know it's very simple, but it's a very good way to start it off with people and also letting people know prior so if if counseling things stresses you out send a text saying to people uh preemptively i'm gonna be a bit quiet for the next month um i promise i i love you and i want to see you but i'm just really busy please don't take it personally i'm just gonna be busy and i need you to know that let's get a date in for next month that kind of thing but just communication just communication and always preemptively doing it with the people that you love in your life because if also you've got to remember if you're just trying to implement boundaries into your life People will be a bit resistant to it at first if the pattern has been in your dynamic that you are a doormat to be walked over and that Floss never says no. So, oh, look at you, blah, blah, blah. Fucking get used to it because this is what's going to happen around here. And then you'll start to, there will be an adjustment period and hopefully those people just adjust to it and there will be a bit of a period where you might need to remind someone um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to do FaceTimes like that, like randomly anymore. Actually, can, can you text me before you FaceTime? And they might override that boundary again and forget. And then you just have to remind them a couple of times and hopefully the new pattern builds. But setting patterns in friendships is a part of life and you're going to have much better friendships because of it. Mm-hmm. 
That's really good advice. I tend to go for the sort of head in sand approach because yeah, avoiding <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and then it makes everything so much worse. Oh, it does. Um, Just send them a text. <laughs> okay, that's useful. <laughs> um, and then the other thing, because I think this is something that people will deeply relate to, is this sort of navigating friendships and cultivating friendships. And I think what you said about if we can have like five people that we really trust that are our sort of like inner circle, our tribe that we know that we can go to and they will like tell us how it is, even if it's what we don't, you know, something we don't want to hear. How would you advise people to go about cultivating that in their life if they are in between, in that in-between phase? Yeah, so like I said, when I moved to London, I didn't have many friends at all. Like I had one friend that I saw, saw from Plymouth. I was mostly busying myself with work to the point where I wasn't social at all at uni. So I have been in that position where I've not really had many friends and they've just, it's trial and error and friendships. I don't think it always has to be, you know, it takes years to make incredible friends, but in terms of trusting people, trusting people is a process. And I think with women, often we can hotwire a connection in the girl's bathroom just because we dislike the same fucking person or because, <laughs> or because we like her outfit and then instantly it's besties. And that is so beautiful, not bitching about others' part. That's a false connection. But, you know, when we bond over shared interests or something initially, personally, anyway, I've been very inclined to just give women my trust just because they're women. And then, but it actually takes months and months and months of pattern building to find out who's a friend and who's a social friend. And who's someone that you go for drinks with? And who's who's a person that's going to bring you stuff when you're poorly or on your period? And there's all these different types of friendships that we have. And you should have different categories for friendships. And I'm not saying write a fucking list about, oh, this person deserves this and this person doesn't deserve this access. It's like a mental thing of sifting out those people and kind of over the time as you grow, as, as you shift and expand things, it's like things are going to shake off and... It's just nature. Over time, when you have these people, when you find these people, either by frequenting a regular cafe or going to a local gig every weekend or something, all of these things that happen, you will find your people eventually. And over the years, time will tell if they're a real friend or if they're not a real friend. But time will tell. And trusting people is a process. If you're not comfortable with doing something, if you feel a little twinge in your gut and you think, I probably shouldn't say that, don't say it. Hold it back. You don't want to have the vulnerability hangover the next day. Trust is something that needs to be earned over time, but also please remain open to new relationships and friendships because that is the other thing that you can do is being too scared to trust someone, um, which I've had personal experience with. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, Floss, thank you so much. It's been thank such a you. to speak to you. I've enjoyed this as well. And if there's anything else you want to add for our listeners, otherwise it's been such a pleasure talking to you. We've covered quite a lot of ground. Yeah, we've covered quite a lot. And it would be sick if you checked out my new book, Girl Crush, which just published last week. And also my podcast, my own podcast, exactly. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Saturn Returns and I hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to pre-order the Saturn Returns book, it is now available. Or if you would like to come and see us at the live show in January, I would love to see you there and you can find ticket links in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening and remember, you are not alone. Goodbye.